My name is Justin Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And it's the end of Shocktober. Oh. It's alive. <laughs> yeah. I actually had a thought. I'm like, got to think of some more sound effects to make. And then I completely forgot it when I started recording. I was working in the lab late one night. We did the mash. That's all we're allowed to sing. We don't want to be sued or anything like that. <laughs> We don't know what match we're doing. Actually, we know which one we're doing because this week we're talking about the women directors that worked with Roger Corman. Which, by the way, I see is now going to be a featured uh, retrospective on the Criterion channel. And I just want to say we had this idea first. (laughs) Yeah, we did. Criterion must be spying on us and they stole our stuff just like they stole those Hunter Biden papers from Tucker Carlson. See, I do politics too, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I took Will aback. He's like, I don't know what to say now. Well, listen, we don't get too political on here. Instead, we're talking about the greatest politics of all, which is the movies. And now on that note, let's talk about what women brought to Roger Corman Productions. So Roger Corman, who we did an episode about a long time ago, very 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 long ago do we need to say who roger corman is no we don't people know who roger corman is okay i think that what i would like to say right at the beginning of this is the more you do research into roger corman the more you realize that he is a pathological spendthrift and you know it's fun to say when you just do surface kind of readings of him but it's more depressing when you realize that it's like a psychological problem that like You know, when you hear women talk about the movies that they were making, they would say stuff like he wouldn't give us a generator on some days. And he would say stuff like, oh, you know, use a car to light the sets. And they're like, we're shooting inside, Roger. We need a generator. Well, there's that great biography of him by Beverly Gray, which is basically like an amalgam of Roger Corman, his cheap stories. And one detail that Uh, jumped out at me was if a foreign film festival would pay for his ticket uh he would often like trade the ticket in and and get a coach ticket because at a certain uh, point you know roger corman has so much success that it becomes a game of saving money and that like the directors who would make uh films for him said that when he was on set he would get angry if like stuff in his eyes wasn't moving fast enough or a crane was used or dolly track was used the director of slumber party one said that she had to lie about using a crane in the film and said oh no we figured out a different way to do it to appease him no matter what the cost is because his perception is if these things are utilized then it's wasting money uh at one point he was on set for slumber party massacre 2 and he thought that the film wasn't shooting fast enough and the director told the cameraman to pretend to shoot that way it would appease him it's not about like the end result it's the process and saving money in it roger corman has developed a reputation over the years as among hollywood producers of hiring more women than is typical especially when you consider the new hollywood the 1970s the great scorsese coppola era of american filmmaking that corman is very much a godfather of not a prime era of female representation in front of or behind the camera beginning in that period and all the way through his films in the 1980s the 90s the 2000s corman has shown an unusual not just willingness but sometimes even a preference for hiring women not just as directors but as his attorneys as his producers uh, all levels of production you know studio heads his wife julie corman 
is a prolific producer at his studios too. And a lot of people have argued that this position does reflect his kind of liberal uh, politics that you see on the surface or sometimes very obviously in his films. But it also traces down to the fact that women will work for less than men. Yes. In the Beverly Gray book, which I was skimming through again this week and is is the only good Roger Corman book. It's fantastic. She mentions discussing like, why does he hire women for all of these all of these positions? And somebody suggested that, well, Corman thinks that they're more uh, naturally diplomatic. You know, they don't they don't consider business a turf war. And so they can negotiate more skillfully. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that's true. I can't penetrate Roger Corman's head. But you also learn through that gray book that Corman is not a confrontational person and he likes to saddle the responsibilities to the women in his office to like fire people or give people bad news (laughs) that he would often go to his office and hide while this kind of bad news was delivered to people that surrounded him and putting women in those positions. You know, it could be viewed as like a motherly assignment or you know it could also be viewed as you know these women they can do as much as men because it's true they can do more than men because they have to fight like a thousand times more strongly to get to the positions where they can direct stuff like even the director of slumber party massacre number one like she worked her way up through the editing department and had to convince Corman that she could do it, while other men who directed for him sometimes just stumbled into that position. Yeah, I don't think Corman would be completely uh, immune to the unconscious biases and the institutional sexisms, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that exist. Also, I think Roger Corman, as a man, as a director, he has shown himself to be basically a liberal. But as a producer, I don't think he would be anyone's idea of, like, a feminist producer per se especially like in the 80s and the 90s when his films were increasingly focused on like strippers and like sexual violence stuff like that uh nevertheless it is true that he did on the balance sheet uh, give more women directing jobs than just about any of his contemporaries any of his contemporaries about eight percent i actually calculated went through his filmography and logged any film that was directed by a woman that his name was on. And it comes out to about 8%, which is fairly high for any producer. I mean, let's be honest, the Important Cinema Club probably does only one out of 10 women figures. So yeah, we're on that same level, which is not respectable. So we watched three movies that I think are probably like, I'm just going to say like the three most famous Uh, female-directed Roger Corman films, which are Slumber Party Massacre, the first one, Humanoids from the Deep, and Stripped to Kill. So let's start with Slumber Party Massacre, which is one of the most famous Roger Corman-produced movies and is notable for being, like, on the face of it, seemingly, superficially, a very a very sexist-looking movie. I mean, it's a very slashery kind of movie. And it's one that got raked over the coals when it was released as a kind of poster child for sexualized violence being delivered to women. I mean, just to dig down right from the get-go, this film is written by Rita Mae Brown, who would go on to be a very prominent feminist figure, but... This is not her script. So the director of this, Amy Holden Jones, pulled that Rita Mae Brown script out of a drawer 
And it was very serious, had no jokes, and she just rewrote it from top to bottom. The story goes that the director of Slumber Party Massacre 1 directed one scene from the movie with her own money to prove to Roger Corman that she could be a director. And when Roger Corman said, all right, you can work for me as a director, but you got to direct the rest of this movie. She went, ah, okay, so I'm going to rewrite all of this. So the end result, I mean, it's easy to kind of like look through that lens of, wow, like a public feminist wrote this. But it was completely rewritten, so let's keep that in mind. <laughs> this movie, though, nevertheless, has had kind of an afterlife as, I don't know if feminist is quite the right word. Actually, it is the right word. It's had a somewhat feminist reappraisal in recent years. All you have to do is go on Letterboxd and you can see that. The plot is a pretty standard, like, boilerplate slasher movie plot. Uh, some high school girls, one of them, home alone, decides to have a slumber party. And in the neighborhood, there happens to be an escaped killer. And he kills, would you believe it, with a giant drill. What could the drill be symbolic of? His penis. Uh, penis. Interesting. Okay. Dick, schlong, what other? Trouser snake? There is a scene, in fact, where it is framed from behind his legs, graduate style, with, with the big whirring drill uh, down below. Fun story. The poster of the movie also has that image, and they wanted it to be between his legs. But Roger Corman said, nah, move it off to the side, which is why it is the way it is on the uh, famous cover art of the three random women who are not in the movie screaming at as the man holds the drill. As we talk about these movies, I think what we're going to be asking each other is like, what did a woman bring to these movies that a man wouldn't have? You know, I'd seen this movie before about a decade ago, and I know that the thing that I remembered most about it was that opening shower scene, you know, all the girls in the showers at, at the gym. And, you know, it opens with like a long shot of somebody's ass. And then as the people are in their stalls, the camera goes like it follows people through the stalls. And then the camera just like, goes down close-up shot of a woman's ass lingers on it for like 10 seconds then the camera goes back up and then it goes to the left i remember seeing that you know 10 years ago and thinking wow that is that is unusually direct and to the point point. and i've heard the director talk about this entire sequence and she said listen roger wanted it so i just did it as quickly as possible I regret that the scene has no style and I wanted to move past it. Now, I know the author is dead, but when you hear that, it's like, oh, OK, so I guess that's why it is the way it is in this movie. You know, I watched that scene knowing that the movie has had kind of a feminist reappraisal. And I'm thinking, is the joke on me somewhat? Like, is it making a joke about how this is what you want? Here, have it. Well, it's like the movie starts with the lead getting out of bed in a very infantilized uh, place, her bedroom, which is covered with kind of toys and Barbies. And she actually takes them up and puts them out in the next scene. And she just takes her top off and she stands there for like five seconds. And then the scene continues. It is not sexualized in any way. The camera is looking through a door frame as if you are staring and you're peeking in on this thing. And it's just a matter of fact, and you want to read into it, knowing the people that made it is like, oh, this is commentary on it. And then again, you hear the director go, yeah, this is what Roger wanted. You needed a certain thing at a certain point. And this was the simplest and most direct way that I felt I could deliver it. I heard an interview with Joe Bob Briggs where he was talking about interviewing Roger Corman and you know, Joe Bob Briggs in his reviews used to do those things like three breasts, uh, one monster, one this, that, you know, Joe Bob says, check it out. Some of those like categories he got from having talked to Roger Corman, because he asked Roger Corman about nudity in films and Corman was like, very professorial and analytic about it. He was like, I believe that the protagonist should have 
breast nudity in the first 10 minutes and then rear and breast nudity at the end and then in between there should be two additional scenes of breast nudity from other characters that way the audience will think they have seen more than they have seen so you know like he was very like almost scientific about it well he was he studied to be an engineer and that's how he approaches these movies like how can you add or subtract to get the kind of best result which is money which proves that you've succeeded like roger corman famously he would test his movies to the nth degree to get the perfect product for his audience i think that's what he likes about movies and telling people like you need you know a fight scene explosion or breast every five pages as a filmmaker myself who likes to make entertaining things going through a kind of technical way to do it like that of like you need certain things i would love for movies to have more of that because they would probably be more fun but slumber party massacre getting back to that question of like what did a woman bring to it that a man wouldn't have let us two men decide this (laughs) as we talk about it i'm actually not quite sure i mean i've read feminist analyses of these of this film that say well it's all about voyeurism it's all about it's all about looking which I don't find entirely convincing. I'm not sure if like the feminist reading of it goes far beyond like the killer is a drill and the drill is symbolic of a penis. I mean, what I bring to it when you watch a movie like that is like, oh, a woman who never gets to direct films like this ever can make one that is a classic right off the bat and deliver all the stuff that you would want. Not just that like, oh, well, how is it different from a woman's perspective? Just that she can take the genre and make one that's better than everything else around, you know, the ones that are being made. Well, it is a very like above average slasher movie, right? Like, I think it would be considered a classic by most people from slasher movie standards, just breaking it down and going, it's stylish. There's, you know, stock and slash sequences. There's a wry sense of humor that is aware of the kind of movie that's being made, but it never punctures it or looks down upon it, even though maybe the creative people, that's how they felt. It's just like a great slasher movie. And I think that that kind of feminist reading comes a lot from the fact that the director knew what kind of movie that they were making. And by injecting a kind of sense of humor into it, you know, it's giving, you know, the director's perspective, who is a woman, like the actors just hanging out and just chatting or the fact like the very comedic sequence where one of them eats pizza over a dead guy, just doesn't care what's happening around them. Like that stuff is fun. And it's not, poking like why would you watch this audience which you sometimes get a lot from uh directors who think that they're better than the material i think the friday the 13th movies which were popular around this time are less joyful than this one is there's a strong sense of like death 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 i don't want to sound like roger ebert here but like there's a strong feeling of like we're going to the next death and these people are going to fucking die in those movies whereas this one even the scenes of the guy with the drill are kind of like jolly i mean the director of slumber party massacre amy holden jones would say stuff like they'd hold her movie up all the time and it would kind of hold her back and she's like jonathan demi made a slasher francis ford coppola made a slasher and uh skin flicks as well joe dante made slashers martin scorsese made exploitation films people kind of talk about those films as like oh you know it's fun they work their way up to the bigger stuff and she's like for me They just like, it weighs down my career. This is the thing that kind of defines it. Let's move on to a movie that I don't think has uh, had any reappraisal as a feminist classic, uh, but 
uh, 1980s Humanoids from the Deep, which is credited to Barbara Peters, but was also co-directed by uh, somebody else, because this is an example of a film, one of a number of films that Corman took away from the original director and had somebody else shoot additional scenes for. Uh, problematic additional scenes. I've read some uh, takes that like all the new scenes were cut out. But then watching the film, I'm like, no, it feels like they were left in because there's some real like problematic stuff at play here uh, that goes beyond just like breasts being showed on screen or, you know, violence happening on screen, which uh, according to some reports I read, Barbara Peters shot all of that violence herself. It was the sexual stuff that Corman demanded and that she had difficulty with, which which in the context of the movie, it seems like she had already shot, but he wanted more and he wanted it. Filled with sexual assault. Well, this is a bit of a Jaws ripoff, although I guess it's also a bit of a Piranha ripoff, which is the Joe Dante f- film that Corman produced a couple years earlier. Standard plot. You got your scientific experiments in a small fishing village that end up creating these half-man, half-fish creatures, which stalk the village and kill the young lovers on the beach and rape women etc etc <laughs> i like how you said rape women as if it's something that happens in all the monster movies that we watch <laughs> yeah yeah you're right well anyway i'll read just a little bit from the beverly gray book where she explains the situation she says when joe dante turned down humanoids from the deep the directing job went to new world veteran barbara peters unfortunately corman decided the finished film needed more nudity his solution was to dismiss peters much as he had done with paul Bartel, an ad footage hastily shot by others. John Sayles described it for me. There's a blonde woman who's attacked in a tent, and there's a brunette woman with much larger breasts who runs out of the tent after she's attacked. Apparently, the actress had unsuccessfully petitioned the Screen Actors Guild to halt the film's release, but obviously that didn't happen. I had never seen this movie before. I was uh, a little bit disappointed by it. I felt like I ought to have had more fun with it than I did. It's so dour. There's not like a speck of humor anywhere in it. And I remember, I think, you know, some other people that worked as Barbara Peters said that like she didn't like making this kind of movie and that you can tell in the finished product (laughs) that it's kind of like straight ahead. There's not really any style. The Robotine monsters with like goofy long arms. They're fun, but like it's already kind of like left my memory at this point. Like there's nothing really that stands out other than that big massacre that happens at the end of the movie. As I was watching it, I was thinking this is in some ways the quintessential New World Pictures movie. This is the movie that you expect to see when you watch a New World Pictures movie. It's got sex and nudity. It's got a fishing village. It's got some faded stars in it like Vic Morrow. It's got a rubber monster creature who bites off people's faces And so I guess I enjoyed seeing some of that stuff. And yet, I don't know. You know, it's it's weird. Like this film, Galaxy of Terror, they're not like films I ever go back and revisit. Some people hold them in high regard. But I think that it was already tainted from the beginning when I was reading about them. And they're like, they're filled with sexual assault. And I was like, no, thank you. Like, it's just like, that's, I'm just not interested in it. But I can understand that there are salient elements that other audience members, they would enjoy. There's no hidden agenda here. So there's no depth to it. And there's also, as you say, like, you don't sense the filmmaker being in love with this material or trying to impose a particular vision on the material. Like, you can see the roots of Joe Dante and Piranha. You can see the roots of Martin Scorsese to some degree in Boxcar Bertha. There's there's no kind of passion here. I, you know, I wonder 
if this wasn't Shocktober, we would have probably maybe gone into the nurse films, which a lot of these directors di did, like Barbara Peters directed a nurse film, and how their perspective on those pictures, which are all about women, would have been different. But I don't have much experience with those either, do you? I don't think I've ever seen any of the nurse movies. Isn't that weird? No, me neither. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should do a Patreon episode on one of those. Yeah, that sounds actually like a good idea. But before we do that, I know that you uh, dipped into a little movie called Munchies, which I think has haunted you for your whole life, right? No, Munchie has. Oh, Munchie, singular. Which they were both made by Roger Corman, but only Munchies is the Gremlins ripoff, which is notable because it was directed by the editor of Gremlins. Uh, so she worked a lot with Joe Dante, Tina Hirsch, but Munchies, it's terrible it's a kid's film it's like just a bunch of sh crappy looking puppets running around in the desert doing nothing funny uh it's just not good <laughs> well i know that you also watched a movie that i watched maybe 10 years ago a direct-to-video documentary directed by odette springer who used to be a music supervisor at corman's company concord new horizons which was the company he founded after new world pictures in the 80s some nudity required and it's all about how direct-to-video you know, schlock movies had become so obsessed with sex and nudity and sexual assault. And in my memory of it, Roger Corman is in it. Jim Wynorski is in it. And it's all about this woman, Odette Springer's struggle with having worked on these films and having having felt some sort of, a, I don't know, some some ambivalence about having having worked on them. And I believe she herself is a sexual assault survivor. Well, she talks about how she's like attracted to these kind of exploitation elements and feeling uncomfortable about what that says about her. And, you know, it's really her personal journey. It even ends with her making a realization and like leaving the world entirely behind and moving on beyond that. And it does ask some interesting questions uh, like from these filmmakers and shows like a real rough shod side of them. Like Jim Wyronorski does not want to be questioned at all. And like, it's really angry. And he's like, this interview is boring. I don't want to answer any of these questions. I just want to get out of here. Like Fredel and Ray is there as well. I was actually taking a little bit of back because I thought it was going to be about all of Corman's career, but it's just about like this one moment when they're making movies that nobody talks about anymore. So when you're talking about exploitation, it's in its purest form because what these actors are doing will not continue to be consumed because like nobody watches 90s Roger Corman films, except for maybe Carnosaur. Like all the sex films that came and there's so many of them never get revisited ever. And we essentially watched the one that started that whole trend. Yeah, we watched Strip to Kill by Kat Shea. It was Kat Shea's uh, feature-length directorial debut. She later went on to do Poison Ivy and The Rage Carrie 2. And uh, yeah, it started a whole wave of stripper-themed erotic thrillers that Corman and others produced. And she pitched it to him not only because it was an exploitable premise, but also because she wanted to kind of humanize the world of strippers. I would say that Corman delving into like kind of like the stripper subgenre and focusing principally on sexual elements killed his filmography pretty much dead 
from here on out. Would you say the same? Yes, I would say the same with the caveat that you can make a good movie about anything. And like, yes, you can. If these were good movies, we might be talking about them with the same reverence that we talk about certain Jess Franco movies, right? But I also think that like, as Corman got into the 90s and sexuality became his main thing, he also became less interested in making stuff that was good as well. That like, he got like, how can I spend even less money if breasts are the only thing that people want to see? And by consequence, any kind of interest beyond that moment completely dissipates. Well, people often talk about the turning point in his career having been the release of Jaws and then Star Wars in the 70s, which were the movies that showed the major studios that they can beat people like Roger Corman at his own game. They can make big budget genre movies. And so from that point on, I think the the shift in his career is he used to be expanding. It used to be like, how can I make a bigger and bigger independent studio? But then the game became, how can I survive? How can I survive with less? And so in the 90s, it was all of these erotic thrillers, these TNA things, which he cornered the market on. But I don't even think it's how can I survive? I think Corman is, how can I make the most out of the least? Again, it gets to that pathological feeling is that that's what interests him at that point. And it's almost like any creative decisions, because he had been doing it for so long, had kind of blocked him up because, like, famously, he could not move on Frankenstein Unbound. Like, he was frozen making that movie because the idea that he would have to do something more creative kind of, like, blocked him up, which I think is a fascinating kind of like psychological profile of how someone gets to that point and if anybody has watched frankenstein unbound it's like oh boy so strip to kill i think it's worth watching don't expect great things from it but it has some interesting elements uh, the plot involves a detective played by Kay Lenz who goes undercover into the stripping world to find a serial killer who's been targeting strippers and how does she go undercover you ask as a stripper herself and this movie, which is a little under 90 minutes, I mean, apparently the rough cut was over two hours long. And uh, Corman, ever the savvy businessman, realized that, well, a tape has to be under 90 minutes because then the, the packages will cost less to ship. That was his main artistic priority at that time. He just chopped it down to under 90 minutes. And what do you think got cut? It was all the character building stuff because Cat Shea wanted to create this portrait of the world of strippers, a humanizing portrait that that showed them living to some extent, to some degree, living their lives, you know? Well, you know, they kept the slut-shaming uh, male uh, partner of the cop in the movie who is constantly showing up going, listen, these strippers may have their own agency, but it's bad and it shouldn't be done. Right, so he's in there. And I mean, you're not supposed to regard that sympathetically, I think. Um... And there's a, there are certain there are certain scenes there's there's enough of Cat Che's original idea to I think make the movie worth watching. There are a lot of striptease scenes, and they're long too. They're long. It's like Orgy of the Dead, <laughs> and they are shot with more style than you might anticipate. They're almost shot in like like the movie is basically a giallo, and some of those strip scenes are shot in almost like a giallo kind of way with like heavy use of blue light and aggressive use of shadows 
I think Kay Lenz is enjoyable to watch as the star. I think she's a charming and likable screen presence. And I think the movie is relatively engrossing as far as stuff like this goes. This sounds like faint praise, and, and it is, but it's definitely in the upper in the upper tier of late period Corman joints. So I think Corman, he's a very good self-promoter. He's a very good brander. I do think that he deserves credit for having given a lot of opportunities to a lot of people including women. Although, I don't know, it's funny, whenever we talk about Roger Corman, and I do love Corman, I, I think he has a fascinating career, and he's been undoubtedly a net good to film history. But I think we always end it with, with a little bit of melancholy, talking about what a shame it was that after the 70s, he seems to have kind of, not only did he give up, but he became like the kind of producer that he complained about back when he was working at AIP, right? I mean, I think the thing with Corman is that if he had just stopped working after, like, you know, uh, the mid-80s, we wouldn't have these, like, sad stories. And, like, he went on with his life and he did a bunch of other productive things. Or maybe he just became a director. But he just had to continue being a producer and keep churning stuff out. And unfortunately, a lot of these women that worked on Corman joints, you know, Corman has that classic story is that, like, you work for me and then you go on and work for somebody else. I mean, he did continue to give opportunities to these directors. Like, he uh, funded the director of Slumber Party Massacre, her second film, Love Letters, which was actually, like, a straight non-exploitation film. But then she found difficulty getting work. The director of uh, Slumber Party Massacre 2 also directed Rock and Roll High School Forever. And then, uh, you know, there's no more opportunities because once they would get out of that Corman bubble, the sexist, you know, world of Hollywood, they would just run up against it. And there was like very few opportunities or maybe one. And if that doesn't succeed, that's over for them because that's how it works for women. It's nice that Roger Corman gave all of these women opportunities and they had these experiences, but it only underlines that like not even he gave that many women opportunities and that Hollywood itself is friggin' terrible <laughs> if you're a woman because there were no opportunities. I mean, there's still none now, but it's just crazy if you just look it out broken down like an engineer would. By the way, I guess we should also just mention that the best movie ever directed by a woman for Roger Corman was uh, Penelope Spheris's Suburbia, right? Oh, that movie's so good, yes. That we did not talk about because it is not Shocktober this month. Oh! <laughs> All right, so we don't got any letters this month. I know that we're, uh, two episodes have come out very in close proximations because we're getting back on schedule. We're going to post them all on the same day. So if you want to send us letters, uh, it's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. So send us your letters, questions, comments, and we shall do our best to answer them. What are we doing this week on our Patreon? Will? This week we watched the most recent and quite possibly final, who knows, directorial credit by Sammo Hung, the great Hong Kong filmmaker. We watched My Beloved Bodyguard, which Justin and I saw a few years ago because we love Sammo. We didn't like it that much. But something about it kept tugging at us. Something about it was like, we have to revisit this movie and spend some time with Sammo. So did revisiting it change our perspective? I guess you'll have to find out. Patreon.com slash The Important Cinema Club. It's only $5 a month to join. So do it, please. I beg of you. I was looking at the Michael and S numbers. They have more than double The Important Cinema Club. <laughs> So we got to get over that. Or you know what? This turned into a politics podcast. 
listen, there's a million out there. This can be another one, right, Will? Listen, Justin, we can't let this tear us apart. <laughs> it's not going to tear us apart. It's only going to bring us closer together. Uh, the crazy Democrats in Washington, right, Will? <laughs> so what are we doing next week? Uh, we're doing, I'm going to say his name incorrectly, Andrzej, Andrzej Zalowski. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Possession, The Devil, intense movies that are going to shock us to our core. Yeah, this is one that we've been punting for a while because like uh, the movies, movies definitely seem like a lot of work. I mean, I've, I've seen Possession and it's great, of course. So I am excited to uh, delve more in. But... And he feels like a director who has only kind of gotten more acclaim and more attention over the last decade, I would say. And that like people are really talking about him and he's reached that pat pantheon of like you know classic director so i'm interested to explore more of his work so that's what we'll be doing next week until then my name is justin Clue. i'm will sloan thanks for listening i'd just like to thank some of our new patreon subscribers who include graham paul donovan soja bradley roy dean thompson john eric jarvis Ian Stratton, Lisa Silver, Jan Stewart, Peter Koplowski. Wow, finally, he's in! Charo and Emily Lekvi. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not do this without you. And as per usual, you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. You can follow me on Twitter at J or on Letterboxd, just Justin DeClue, D-E-C-L-O-U-X. And Will is on Letterboxd at Will Sloan. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Will Sloan ESQ. And now we return you to your regular scheduled programming. So recently, Unearthed Films, oh, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time, put out The Untold Story, the classic Category 3 shocker out on Blu-ray. Not a film I love or will probably rewatch very often, but there was a documentary on it that was feature length about Category 3 films themselves, which for the thousandth time, Will, for people that don't know, what is a Category 3 film? In Hong Kong, in the Hong Kong film industry, in the 80s, they introduced a rating, which is basically the Hong Kong equivalent of X or NC-17. It's Category 3, and that's where the movies with very extreme violence and sexual content would go. I believe the rating was introduced because of The Last Temptation of Christ, oddly enough, which is not a film of extreme violence and sexuality, but it was a movie that they needed to create an adults-only rating for. The other key early Category 3 production was a mainland production called Men Behind the Sun, which was a propaganda film about Japanese World War II atrocities. A despicable film, a film full of... Uh, some of the, some of the most hideous torture scenes you've ever seen, and for the next, I would say, ten years after that, throughout the '90s, Category Three became this burgeoning genre, a genre with its own stars, uh, with its own classics, with directors who specialized in it. Some of the key ones include Sex and Zen, an erotic ghost story. Ebola syndrome, Red to Kill. We've talked about some of these on mic before, but. They've been compared to pornography. They they didn't actually have hardcore pornography in Hong Kong at the time, but they've been compared to pornography just in terms of like the stigma attached to them. But these were like above ground, very slick, very professional and polished movies that played at the movie theater with all the other Hong Kong movies. And there were some stars who crossed over, like Shu Ki was a Category 3 star, a, a, a vixen of the Category 3 films who later went on to star in movies like Ho Shao Shen's The Assassin and other other classic the transporter. Uh, above ground films. Yeah, The Transporter with Jason Statham. That's another good example. 
Uh, so do you like the Category 3 films? No, not really. I, the issue with Category 3 films is that they're mostly filled with sexual assault that really gets from their ratings. And uh, yeah, that kind of makes me... Eh, ugh, I, they're so long, those sequences. <laughs> yeah, I like I like them more than you do, just because I think I'm a little bit more attracted to like extreme, gruesome content than you are. And, you know, like all the Hong Kong movies of the time, there is a particular energy to them i mean i like something like run to kill because that one is mostly just gruesomeness i was interested in watching this documentary because here in the west there's there's a limit to how much information we have about hong kong film there, there have been books and there have been you know certain historians like rick myers or whoever who have interviewed all the people but like a disreputable genre like Category 3, I was very eager to hear what the history of it and what, what the social factors behind it were. I think the documentary's big thesis that it proposes is this was an explosion of energy that was hastened by anxiety surrounding the handover in 1997 when Hong Kong returned to China. And so there was this feeling in Hong Kong of like, well, we got it. We got to get it all out on screen right now. We got to get all the sex and violence done now because we don't know what's happening. I think that the issue with the documentary and i knew this going in is that it is a story that is delivered just like the people you're listening to right now by white guys yeah well there are like three or four western critics and programmers including Batman bay logan who who basically tell everything and there are very few actual hong kong people in it there's godfrey ho our favorite who talks a little bit there's anthony wong who was probably like I mean, you know, he's one of the biggest stars in Hong Kong, but he made a, a real splash in Category 3 films. There are a couple of others, but, like, not as many as you want. Yeah, I, I wonder if it is, like, a barrier, because I'm sure the director of this did reach out or try to get these people. And maybe there's just no interest, or because he doesn't speak the language, there's also difficulty getting hold of people. Like, most of the people who are interviewed do speak English on camera, like Josephine Ho, the star of Dream Home, which is like a Category 3 slasher film. I mean, I'm sure there's a reason that we don't hear from Amy Yip, who is the biggest, like, sex star. I mean, maybe she doesn't want to talk about these movies, but... I would have loved to have heard from her from like Wang Jing or it comes down to like these people they see no value in talking about this kind of stuff which is what's frustrating and you know the white guy delivering stuff that's what me and you do every week and it's tough to get around that sometimes we do hear though from Godfrey Ho who directed Men Behind the Sun 2 and he talks about having filmed at an actual hospital and filmed an actual dead body for one of the scenes Ugh, that's so gross and, and he's like yeah you know I, we went to the hospital and like Hey, do you have any dead bodies around? And like, oh yeah, sure, they're on this floor. Go ahead, film whatever you want. <laughs> so, how does Men Behind the Sun uh, two, Laboratory of the Devil, compare to Men Behind the Sun one? Will I haven't seen it, but I what you haven't seen it? No, no, but I would love to. <laughs> well, you got to set that up for yourself. <laughs> 